The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. And um, many of you know that the Visitor Studies Association is having their annual meeting uh, as we speak in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And unfortunately, I was not able to get out to the meeting this year. But it's been uh, getting me thinking uh, more about uh, the research that we do, the formal research and informal uh, research. And, you know, having been in this uh, field for 25 years, I've certainly seen a uh, a greater several uh, trends one uh, providing a uh a greater opportunity to really look at uh, serious research questions and begin to uh, get a better vocabulary for the the work that we do and measures of success and impact. Uh, the other big trend, of course, is the ability to share this information uh, electronically, uh, digitally. I was was uh, thinking yesterday about informallearning.org uh, and the ability to um, uh, actually pr- look at their database uh, over about uh, 15 years of informal science education and how that's the ability to communicate our research results uh, amongst ourselves is really uh, changing the way we think about our field and talk about our field. The other great advantage that I had with having VSA being uh, in Albuquerque is Regan Forrest from Australia happened to uh, be at the meeting. And so since we were in the same continent and sort of in the same time zones, I took advantage of the fact that uh, she could be on our show today. And I'm really excited to have Regan on the show. She is, uh, I'm going to give her an opportunity to tell you more about 
her background, but let me just introduce her by saying that she is the director of Interactivate. Uh, she is a writer and interpretive planner and soon to be a newly minted PhD from the University of Queensland. Many of you probably know Regan for her very interesting blogs uh, that now can be found on interactivate.com uh, AU. And so without uh, taking uh, more of our time, Regan, I wanted to uh, welcome you to our show today and uh, give you an opportunity to talk a little bit more about how you got into the museum field. Oh, good morning, Carol. It's great to be here. Um, yeah, I think like a lot of people in this field, um, I'm one of those people that sort of was working in museums before I even figured out what museum work was. It's something you kind of fell into. Um, I started out as a research scientist. So my first degree was actually in biochemistry and I used to work in biomedical research and that's, I thought I was going to do a PhD and that's what I thought it was going to be and I thought I was going to be a research scientist. Um, but about a year into working as a research assistant after I finished university, I, I started to wonder whether I actually a, la- a career in the lab was for me after all. And then I found out about this thing called science communication and I didn't really know what it was. Uh, I thought it probably meant something to do with being a journalist or being on one of those science shows on TV or something like that. Um, But there was a year-long course at the Australian National University that is jointly run with uh, Questacon, which is a science centre in Australia, and they run a national outreach program. So if you do their graduate diploma in science communication, it's now called a Master's in Science Outreach, but you, you sort of spend part of your time studying science communication uh, theory uh, in the, it, at university and then actually applying it in, real, in, real, in the real world, going out to schools in regional Australia, um, giving science shows, uh, staffing a, a, a sort of portable um, hands-on exhibition that travelled around in the back of a truck, loading it on and off, uh, going around, promoting it, getting visitors there, staffing a shop, etc., etc. So uh, that's, that was my sort of first taste of and I think from that... Um, one of the projects we had to do was like develop a concept for an exhibition uh, and I quite enjoyed that and then but having done that um, I got a bit of a, the bite of the travel bug traveling around Australia and I'd never actually left Australia before at that time um, so I decided to go over to the UK and this was in the late 90s um, and that was around about the time that there was a lot of funding for building new science centres uh, for sort of to celebrate the turn of the, Ameri- uh, the millennium I'm not sure um, how familiar uh, American audiences would be th- with this, but there was a lot of new sort of science-based um, attractions and science centres built around built around about the late nineties. Um, so then I went over there, started as a researcher at um, a science centre in Bristol, and then worked went to Leicester, which is in the uh, slap bang in the middle of England, uh, and worked on they were developing the National Space Centre, which was a space themed visitor attraction there. So I was working as a researcher developing their ex- exhibitions, um, and then. When that was coming to an end, because I was a contract worker, I only contracted until the exhibition opened, uh, the exhibition design company, who happened to also be in Leicester, but they work um, all over the world, uh, they were saying, so Regan, uh, what are you doing after you finish, after the Space Centre's open? And it was like, well, I'm kind of job hunting and I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do yet, because I wasn't ready to leave the UK at that point. And uh, one thing led to another, and they were expanding their interpretation department at the time, so I ended up 
making the jump from being a um, a client to being a consultant. And then I spent the next five and a half years while I was in the UK um, working as an interpretation consultant in an exhibition design company. And that's kind of where I sort of the, the transition to museums happened because although I tended to specialise in the hands-on science centre-based um, projects, Inevitably, as a consultant, you end up doing whatever projects happen to be on the book. So one of the first ones I did was a, um, uh, a 13th century medieval guild hall. Um, so you know, we're having to learn about medieval architecture and why these buildings were built, etc., etc., so I could interpret it. Um, and then later on, uh, doing some projects in the US, some National Park Service historic sites and having to sort of brush up on US history, which for an Australian, it's not something that's covered much in the curriculum. <laughs> So that's kind I can, of how I fell can into imagine. <laughs> so yeah, that that's kind of how it sort of. And then about then I sort of about seven or eight years ago um, we moved we moved back to Australia. Um, it was actually my husband's work that moved us that moved us back to Australia. I freelanced for a little bit till I to, to get a bit of the lay of the land. Uh, worked, then worked for an exhibition design construction company here for a while, and then. One, then it, the sort of planets aligned um, and there was a bit of an opportunity for me to get a PhD. Um, so then for the last three and a half years, I've been mostly full-time doing that and I'm just, I'm about to submit my thesis for examination in, in a few weeks' time. So I'm hoping that will all go through and then, yes, I can um, claim the PhD. And while I'm doing that, I've also, as you said, I've established Interactivate as a visitor experience consultancy and I'm starting to uh, ramp that up as well. Well, you know, congratulations. Uh, getting getting a doctorate in any field is uh, a testament to tenacity and perseverance. Uh, and uh, uh, and more importantly, I think you. Uh, since I've had a chance to look at a little bit of your thesis presentation, I think it really is a huge contribution to our field. But before we get into that, uh, I'd just like to uh, ask you a little bit more about uh, what went into your decision to get a doctorate, uh, particularly in this field. Uh, you know, you don't need a doctorate to work in a museum, as you know, as opposed to uh, having to have a doctorate if you work in a biochemistry lab. So, sure. just yeah. you know, sort of, sort of what. Uh, you know what? What? Uh, what weighed in that balance for you? Okay. Well, there's a there's a few um, there's a few sort of circumstances and also some pragmatic reasons as well. Um, I think one of the things that was possibly way back when when I was working in Leicester. Um, I happen to be fortunate in that, you know, the University of Leicester, which is just down the road, um, has got one of, I think, I think it even has a reputation across the US as well. It's definitely one of the most well-known museum studies programs in the UK. I think it's probably the oldest. Uh, so some of those people who, have, uh, who are very well known in the field, people like Eileen Hooper-Greenhill, etc., were people that I actually, I was able to sort of sit in on a few classes at the University of Leicester and some of their master's program as sort of not for credit, but just sort of get a bit of a flavour of, of what was happening in the museum studies field as early as 2000. So, and also I used to be, sometimes go and raid the university library to see what journals were saying about hands-on learning to see how that could inform my work. So I think because of that, um, geographic co-location I was aware of the fact that this was something that you could research and I thought that was really quite you know I was I was, I was fascinated by a lot of that research pretty much from day one um, 
And then when I got back to Australia, um, I sort of re- there was sort of a natural break point. Um, and then there's, there's always the sort of, um, it became the right time to be able to take a career break. Um, my husband had, to, he, he was able to, he was got a much more stable work from there. He was still working sort of contract to contract. He got a permanent job, so he didn't have to worry too much about if I was going to take time away. Uh, and also the way that um, the Australian postgraduate um, system is set up, um, you're actually Australian citizens can can enrol on a PhD program, and they don't. There's there's no fees associated with it. In fact, I was able to get a, a scholarship, so I was able to get a stipend to actually pay me to study full time for three years. Um, so when when that when I was when I applied, I thought, well, you know, there's no harm in applying and see what happens. And because even though you're right, you don't need a PhD because I'd sort of fallen into this field sideways. I felt that I wanted a little bit more. Um, horsepower under what I'd kind of grasped intuitively over my business experience. I wanted to sort of have the opportunity to actually get some more rigour behind that so that I felt that I had a better claim of having expertise in a particular area. Uh that that makes a lot of sense. I think many of us do fall into this, uh, uh, as you say, we sort of fall in sideways, and it's uh, a challenge for those of us who are working full-time in the field, uh, whether we're a contractor or whether we're working in a museum, to, to, again, as you say, sort of take that pause and be able to, uh, uh, to move forward. Um, so what... Uh, what led you to your research question? Um, it's, it's funny, actually, because I think it's probably something that I've, I was thinking around a lot for a long time. I mean, I think I, I did a bit of cleaning out of some old stuff that was on CD-ROMs and stuff like that when I just recently moved house and dug up old documents of things that I'd written around about 2004 and 2005. And it was very much about, well, you know, because I've been involved in working in exhibition design and, and creating environments, and it was very much about, well, how, do, how are visitors interpreting these environments? What does it mean for their experience? Is it actually making any difference? How does the design of an environment influence some of the decisions they make, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and so I think there was just, I'd had it, in the back of my mind for a while and then when I started having conversations sort of investigating the possibility of doing a PhD with my advisors at the University of Queensland and I had a conversation with my principal advisor Jan Packer um, that, um, and she was sort of saying well you know Regan there's probably about three PhDs in the stuff that you're asking there so you need to sort of refine it down a little bit um, and then I think that's something that naturally happens in the first year of your PhD where you sort of review the literature um, and look at what other things have been done, what haven't, what hasn't been done, what's actually a researchable question in this in the space of the PhD. So that's when it kind of got down to well, what do how do visitors perceive and respond to um, exhibition environments? And one of the gaps that I found in this area is it's it's a hard question to ask, and how, you know how, how does it relate to visitor experiences? And it's very hard to ask that question unless you've actually got some way of measuring perceptions of the exhibition environment. So that's kind of, that sort of became the question that I wanted to address in my PhD: is is a perception of the exhibition environment a measurable phenomenon in a quantitative sense? And if so, what does that mean, and what does it look like? What I find so fascinating about your research question and, uh, and then ultimately the research uh, that you did, which uh, you know, we will discuss uh, further, is that you are asking 
a museum-type question to what often has been uh, left to the realm of the exhibit designer. And, and, that, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, but I think that it's very interesting. You know, there, there are design schools, and mm. there's certainly a lot of rigor uh, and, and knowledge and experience and, and research that goes into the designed environment. Yeah. Uh, but that is not often, but, but there doesn't seem to be the cross-pollination between the design environment and the museum visitors experience in the design environment is that yeah I, I noticed the same thing and I think you're right there is a there is a lot of theory and uh, you know it's, it's not as though you know designers are just putting stuff in there and there's no there's no reflection or theory or knowledge in there but I think a lot of it and particularly with exhibition design um, a lot of it is implied in a kind of tacit way um, that pe- people kind of it's something that designers grasp intuitively and if you look at the way that a lot of the sort of discourses around you know design and exhibition design the thing I found about it is that it was very much in the form of peer peer critique so designers basically um, assessing each other's designs by their own you know design centered criteria which is fine but designers aren't museum visitors or well, you know they can be but they're not typical museum visitors normally and yes. the thing that so they there was sort of that, skew they 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 skew the uh, curve don't they yeah but then the only the, on the on the other hand i think content people can skew the curve in the other direction um, i mean I've, i'm sort of looking at if you know if you, if you sort of think you're typical um, exhibition design meeting and I think you, you, may, you may have been in this scenario as well you've got the designers on one hand arguing for say for instance a particular um, lighting effect or something like that that's going to be quite expensive and the content people will often resist something like this because it's kind of like that's just the box I want to be able to put more stuff in there more things more exhibits more objects and that's just spending money on something that it's not it's just a box it doesn't matter and I sort of thought the only reasonable umpire in this debate from my mind was the visitor and so I sort of thought well what is the visitor perspective is it just a box to them or does this make a difference because I sort of thought the designer and the content person in this debate because of their perspectives they were always going to reach an impasse you're absolutely right, uh, and I think part of that is because there, there's, there was no shared vocabulary, mm. uh, and and it uh, it seems to me that one of the greatest contributions that that you've made in your research, and I'm I'm sort of stealing your thunder here. I I apologize. <laughs> is, okay. is is creating uh, a vocabulary that we can so that the uh, the content specialist and the designer can talk to each other and that both can talk to the visitor. Yeah, uh, and I think that's right. There's, there's a, been one of the things I noticed in um, when I was reviewing the literature is there was a lot of people were saying, you, you know, this lack of shared vocabulary, you're absolutely right. As far as, you know, there wasn't necessarily, the way that designers were talking about things weren't necessarily the same way as curators or interpreters or educators were talking about things. And there have been some steps towards developing a shared vocabulary um, in some of... I mean, I have seen others. It's not as though I'm the first person who's come across this idea. However, I think where I've done something a little bit different and I think will maybe help get a a little bit more traction from a practitioner's point of view is whereas some of these other attempts at um, a shared vocabulary, they come from theory and it's not necessarily obvious 
I, I don't think it would necessarily be obvious to a designer how you would apply that to, except besides in a very general sense. Because mine is based on how on visitors' perceptions, and you can actually, you know, visitors actually can fill out, a, you know, a survey instrument to measure this. It's actually you can measure it, so you can kind of say, okay, but we want an exhibition with these properties, and you can actually go back and say, well, did that happen? Um, and you know, it, it created the fact that it's measurable adds another dimension to that shared vocabulary that I don't think so far I haven't seen any other research in this realm that's that's enabled that. I, th- I think you're right. Uh, we're going to uh, t- stop here. Uh, it's a natural break. We are going to take our real commercial break, and we will be back in just a moment with uh, Regan Forrest talking uh, more about her research and also about the relationships uh, that we have in uh, developing museum exhibits. You're listening to Museum Life, and I'm Carol Bossert, and we'll be back in a moment. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. And I'm here to, uh, this morning with Regan Forrest, uh, who has, has been working on a very interesting research question about the perceived, uh, how visitors perceive the overall exhibit environment. Uh, and before break, we were, Regan was talking about the importance of, uh, of creating that vocabulary. And so, Regan, I'd like to sort of follow up with a couple of questions and one uh, can you just I I know this is probably a difficult question can you very briefly give us some of the your key results 
Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I'll just start it off with a little bit about how I actually got to that. So, I mean, there's a few ways that I went that I sort of looked at this question. I did a few accompanied visits with people around the museum that I used as my study site. That helps me get some vocabulary. And then what I also use some in the literature and the way that um, I got to people to measure how they uh, were perceiving the exhibition environment uh, was through a series of 30 semantic differentials. Now, if you haven't necessarily studied psych, you may not know what they are, but it's a little bit like, is this, is, is this place dark? Is it light? Is it structured? Is it unstructured? And it's kind of like you've got seven points between these, and there's 30 different concepts. Um, and visitors would mark where they felt like if it was four, if it was neither, and then seven if it was really one and not the other, and vice versa. If you get the if you get the idea, it's a little bit it's easier to describe with a diagram. But anyway, um, and so those were I did that in three different exhibition environments in the South Australian Museum, which is in Adelaide, um, and that is a natural history uh, slash anthropology museum, uh, fairly large, gets about seven hundred and fifty thousand visitors a year. So that was kind of the, the basis of it. And with about 600 visitors, so roughly um, 150, uh, 100 to 150 per gallery because there was one gallery that's kind of on two floors. So you can kind of count it one or two. It's, it's a bit of a... Um, that's why it's sort of three, possibly four galleries I studied. Uh, and then based on all these numbers that I had, um, I conducted a factor analysis on those 30 items. And that's, that's a way of seeing how these group into concepts that... Uh, visitors were saying that these items all seem to be referring to the same the same sort of higher order uh, concept, if you like. So the factor analysis gave me four higher order concepts, and one of those was the concept called vibrancy, and this was sort of something that was people were describing a space as being vibrant, active, three-dimensional, striking. There was about eight items of those and that they all sort of came together to create a scale that I called vibrancy. Uh, then there was another one called spatiality and that was really a measure of how spacious, open, uncluttered a space felt. Uh, then there was one uh, that was order and that was sort of how logical, um, structured and so forth a, a space felt. And then there's one which um, I'm going to be calling, at the moment I'm calling it the variable formerly known as modernity uh, because I, <laughs> I, I think I'm going to change it. And it's, it's, it's actually, it's a, I think what's grouping in this one, and this is one of the um, issues with studying one site, sometimes things that group into higher order concepts aren't they, they can be grouping not just because visitors are perceiving them as being part of the same concept, but they could just be two things that happen to coincide in the site, in the site you're studying. So what it's in this group is a combination of um, traditional versus modern and some, some, slight, some areas of complexity and also lighting. And I think the reason why they've grouped in this particular instance is because there's a very old-fashioned gallery that's the only one that's got any appreciable natural light levels. So that, that one is something that I'm hoping in future research I can resolve. But the other three, vibrancy, spatiality and order, um, I actually, through, a, through other questions on my survey that were able to measure things, um, people's own perceptions of how affectively and cognitively engaged they were, I was, rather than asking what visitors learned, I was very much focused on how they were describing their own experience in their own terms. So if a, if a visitor said that their attention was focused and they were cognitively engaged, 
I took that as a, I took that as cognitive engagement. I didn't necessarily need to ask them what content they were assimilating. Um, so, so these. The, the measure of vibrancy was the, was the strongest predictor of both affective and cognitive engagement. And also, um, there was a small group of people that I also tracked and timed before I surveyed them, and that indicated that vibrancy is also a predictor of how long they spent in the environment. Um, spatiality is also a bit of a predictor of engagement, not as strong, but it's also a predictor of a sense of relaxation in an environment. So a more spacious environment, visitors tend to feel a bit more relaxed in. Um, Order the all of the galleries um, had a moderately high um, sense of order, they, but they all sort of got averaged over five on a seven-point scale, and there was no statistically significant difference between my galleries. However, um, I think that doesn't mean that order is not important, and it also you did sort of see that there was a negative correlation between order and a sense of cognitive overload, and so I think that there's potentially something going on there where potentially there's a pre- and my um, Qualitative research indicates this as well, that um, visitors like the, you know, a sense of order is almost like a precursor of, you know, wanting to explore more. If they feel they can make sense of it. And also, if you look at some of the, um, the sort of theory behind, um, behind interest and the psychology of interest, um, the things that seem to be able to make something interesting is, is it being sufficiently new, but also having a sense of it's something that you feel that it's not so new and so that you don't feel you've got the cognitive resources and capability of tackling it. And so I think that might be what the measure of order is, is doing. So even though it's not necessarily a good predictor of some of the measures I had for engagement, um, I wouldn't necessarily underestimate it. I, you know, that's very interesting. When you were talking about order, it reminded me of some of the research that Paul Gabriel has done in uh, San Francisco, uh, looking at uh, how his uh, uh, autistic and ADHD students uh, perceive uh, various museum environments and uh, not using, you know, your vocabulary, but describing it in his own words, he's uh, often found a correlation be between uh, what we would call simplistic mm-hmm. uh, uh, organizations so that it's you know, it, it, in a way, it's sort of boring to many of us. It's you know, painting label, painting label, object p- label. Uh, but that that uh, that uh, students who have attention issues often find that very comforting because they know where the label is and they know uh, you know how how to gather that information without a lot of distraction. So I think that this area of order is something that could be uh, expanded uh, to a variety of audiences and a variety of, of uh, institutions. Yeah, and I think I saw the same thing in um, the, the, my accompanied visits and I got people to sort of talk aloud everything they were doing as they were moving through a gallery. And there is evidence of people looking for that higher level organising information. It wasn't necessarily something that dictated their visit, but it was a matter of if, if there was some sort of... If, as soon as they, they spotted a pattern as far as, oh, I see, these, these cases are being labelled geographically, I get how this is being... You know, I can see where this is going now. Um, you sort of saw people do, taking that into account. And some... You're right, some visitors are going to... There was some evidence of they liked being able to 
see what was going on and what was likely to happen next so that could inform what they saw. Others didn't necessarily want to be so dictated to, but I sort of think that the, in a design you can kind of provide those higher order cues for the people who want to know it without it necessarily controlling the visit of those who want to do it their own way. Well, uh, yes, and and I think that you are going to see uh, there are always going to be individual uh, differences. Mm. I mean, we you know there, uh, and that actually led me to a, a different question. And you've already uh, you said that one of the the drawbacks of your study is that you did it in a single uh, institution. Now, of course, as a research scientist, I would say that 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 was probably a good thing to start out with because you did narrow. Uh, some of your other variables. Yes, yes. Uh, and but, that was the rationale. Yeah. Yes, but but it does uh, uh, lead one to to think about uh, were would there be different kinds of and there the relationship between the environment and the content and the expectation of the visitor. Um, yeah. Well, in different settings. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think there probably is. I did a little bit of piloting in another museum, but I was really only looking at the um, at the instrument development at that stage, so I can't really comment on how it relates to the experience. Although one of the things that came out of my study, um, and this it was actually during piloting at this other museum, that um, somebody kind of casually commented to me, says, look... I'm not really quite sure what you're getting at here. I'm kind of just here to look at the exhibit, so I'm not really that interested in the environment. And I thought, aha, there's something, you know, this could be, this, this could be something different. Some people could be inherently more interested in the environment than others. So in the final survey, I added a question that pretty much was verbatim what I remembered that guy saying. Um, and then I sort of segmented, it was a seven point, you know, strongly disagree to strongly agree scale. And then I, I separated those three groups and roughly 30% of the people either disagreed or strongly disagreed with the statement, I don't care about the exhibition environment, I'm just here to look at the exhibits. And so I called them the environment focused visitors because they, 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 they were very much disagreeing with that statement. And when you look at that group, they are, they are actually a different population, surprisingly so. So although most of the groups, you tend to have the same, there are the same relationships and they're in the same direction. For the environment-focused visitors, they are far stronger. And also, although that doesn't surprise me in one sense, the strength of how much the fact that for some people the environment really is important not everybody, for others that were, they said, no, I'm actually here to look at the exhibits, some of my relationships were much weaker or they disappeared entirely. So there is actually, and there there's no obvious clues like demographic or gender or those sorts of things didn't necessarily account for this in, in any sort of ma- major way. There's potentially either um, people's expectations, and I know, say, for instance, a lot of the work that Andrew Peckerick has done at the Smithsonian has mentioned how people's expectations shape the experience. Uh, so if people expect to be interested in the exhibition environment, um, it, it is something that, that influences their experience. And potentially also, uh, you know, if you look at some of the, uh, the big five personality differences, you know, personality uh, dimensions in psychology, there's potentially different types of those could potentially um, lead to some of the, the, the dispositions I saw in my data. Oh. Uh- 
I can I can see all of those things, and I can see about uh, ten more PhD thesis uh, projects coming <laughs> no, coming out, coming <laughs> out of this. Uh, I think that this is, is an incredibly rich uh, level uh, area of study. And before we move on a little bit, I would uh, uh, now you said that you are going to defend um, you know, your work um, in the coming weeks, and uh, I I know that that will will go well for you. Then where will you be publishing your uh, your dissertation? Okay, um, I've I haven't actually worked out ex- where um, I will publish. You know, I'm trying to work out which ones will turn into papers, etc. It's kind of it's always interesting working out which parts of the thesis you turn into papers. Some of the some of my literature review that sets up. The theory behind my research is already published. Um, that was published in uh, the, uh, the visitor studies last year uh, as a review article, um, and, I, and that's called Museum Atmospherics. Uh, and I think it was in volume 16, number two, if anyone's interested in looking that up. Um, then th- th- I will probably also, some of this other work will probably get um, submitted to, again, to visitor studies. Um, I might also look at... Um, some of it going into the uh, uh, environmental psychology literature, possibly. Uh, the other thing as well is because my PhD is through a tourism school, some of these I might try and get into some of those more broader tourism management literature as well because I think some of this isn't necessarily just applicable to the museum world. It could potentially go to other types of visitor experiences that, and that, um, that wouldn't necessarily be exposed to if it was just in the museum literature. I think that that is a very good good point, and uh, it would be incredibly interesting uh, to see how how this uh, this vocabulary and your uh, your approaches, and then the results correlate or or not with other kinds of even other kinds of things that we call museums, you know, a national park visitor center or mm-hmm. a uh, a theme park attraction or uh, some of these other other places. I think that could be uh, very helpful to our field and I think you've touched upon an, another item as well and I, we're going to go to a, a break uh, but when we come back I this idea of now how do we take this very rich literature base that if you're a member of VSA or in uh, the the uh, museum studies community uh, you know about uh, some of these publications and how do we uh, seed this information to the broader design community I think that that is uh, something that, that interests me greatly so that again we can all be sitting around the table uh, talking the same language. Uh, But before I ask you to answer that question, we are going to take uh, another break. And uh, when we come back, uh, Regan will will be able to talk again. Uh, You're listening to uh, Carol Bossert at uh, Museum Life. Remember uh, that you can reach Regan at um, uh, uh, her Twitter handle is at Interactivate. And you can read her very interesting blogs at interactivate.com.au. And we will be back in just a moment. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. 
Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. And we've been talking today with Regan Forrest uh, about her very interesting uh, uh, PhD dissertation work that I think will give us a very interesting and, and useful vocabulary to talk about the designed environment and how visitors perceive that and how it affects their overall uh, visitor experience. And, and Regan, uh, right before we went to break, I was sort of going on uh, uh, about this, this, what I see is a real perceived gap between the research and the theory that you've uh, now been working on and the actual practice of developing a museum exhibit. And so I'm wondering uh, what, are, what your thoughts are on how we might be able to start bridging that gap a little bit better. Yeah, I think you're right. I've no, I noticed the same thing, and I think it's it. I think it's actually changing a little bit now. But just to sort of set the way that I see it historically, is that there was a lot of things that were happening in sort of academic museology, where there was think the museum was almost being studied is being studied as a sort of social social cultural artifact, um, and it was. I mean, perhaps the purpose of it is more to describe, you know, what's going on rather than how to change it, you know, documenting it as a social phenomenon. But um, reading a lot of those things as a practitioner, um, you wouldn't necessarily... You would, there wouldn't be any obvious recommendations out of some of that work. Well, how does this actually change when I do what I do on a day-to-day basis? So I think sometimes the focus of academic museology is not necessarily being focused on practice because that not, not, has not necessarily been the intent. Conversely, um, sometimes in practice, it's just... It, it, there can sometimes not be the time to be self-reflective in practice. You know, you're so busy move, moving from one project to the next. There is not actually that time to sort of take that... Uh, chance to take a breath and see, okay, where does this fit into a bigger theoretical picture? Um, 
I don't, you know, there are, there are obviously, that's obviously a bit of a generalisation, but that was something I noticed. And also as well, you know, and this gets into, you know, we, we talk about publication. Um, not all, People in museums don't necessarily have access to some of these paywalled academic publications. So sometimes there's also, um, you know, the, the gap between those and, say, some of the industry-level publications uh, that, that like organisations like AAM publish, etc. That sometimes they're, they're sort of going to different communities and they're not necessarily sort of parallel discourses. However, I think what I think has really changed in the last sort of five years in particular is how much things like social media and blogs are starting to really break down those barriers. I mean, I'm one of several um, people who have been researching in this space who blogs. Um, there are other people who do it as well. There's a few of us who we tend to have conversations with each other through our blogs, etc., and discuss issues from different perspectives. And I think that's also a way of people from diverse areas finding each other in a way that, you know, we're not necessarily just talking in our own communities. It's much easier. You can cross-fertilise much more easily through, you know, some a fortuitous retweet that you happen to see. And it's like, oh, so that's what, the, you know, that's what's happening in user experience design. Gee, I wonder what, how that could relate to my work. Uh, and I mean, just as an example, I happen to, um, there's, a, there's an academic... Uh, there's an academic website in Australia called The Conversation and I think it's been brought out to other countries but it started in Australia and it's, it's, a, it's a place for academics to write journalistic style articles and somebody there wrote something about experience design and I just happened to tweet a link to it and one thing led to another and they, they, she actually invited me to write an article for an experience design magazine that I co-authored with another person who had done a design-based PhD in Australia and we kind of knew each other because we both worked as design consultants um, and talking about in experience, uh, interpretive design and exhibitions for an experience design audience. So I think sometimes through um, social media, some of, these, some of these gaps are breaking down, but I think it's actually the onus is on researchers like me to actually get out there and be in places where designers are discussing these issues. So that's why I sort of said, although I do want to publish in museological literature, I don't think that's the beginning and end of it. I actually need to make the effort to make sure that wherever designers are reading about this, this sort of thing, I'm putting my work out there. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, uh, I do... Uh, agree with with your uh, uh, observ- observations. It uh, I think it is always a challenge for practitioners to simply find the time. Absolutely. And that is why uh, why meetings are are so very very important. But I still see and 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 big convening meetings such as uh, AAM or uh, I'm I'm sure there's uh, I know there's a, an analog in the UK and I'm sure there's an analog in in uh, yes, uh, Australia yes. as yes. as well. And uh, certainly I know at AAM many many designers and content developers and everyone who would be sitting around the table at the uh, uh, exhibit design meeting do come together. And so mm. this, is, uh, this is an opportunity to discuss the, the, the practice uh, a, a little bit more. But I, I do think that sometimes we also 
uh, because this has been a field that traditionally has not had uh, been based on an academic rigor. It's more of sort of, well, you know, this feels right to me. Mm. I think that there there may be a psychology that needs to be uh, uh, addressed or, or broken down as well. I mean, if, you know, you, you've done something for 25 years and it, you know, it seems to have worked because your metric was that people liked it and they came and, you know, they enjoyed it, then, you know, there's, there's little to suggest that you'd want to change it. Yeah, and I suppose that's... um, I imagine that would be true with any practice. I don't think that would necessarily be unique to museums. Um, But, yeah, I mean, there's... um, uh, yeah, if you look at, say... um, I'm just trying to think about some examples here. Um, Yeah, with connecting practice I'm oh, sorry I've just I've just had a bit of a brain fade there <laughs> um, but yeah if you if you sort of again it's a tacit knowledge of um, how you um, again it's sort of passed down like you might work in an exhibition design company and it, there's a lot of things that's kind of you pick up as you go and you're right it's it feels right intuitively and then it's kind of, and often that often that can have a good theoretical ba- a sound theoretical basis um, but yeah sometimes it's not necessarily there's not the incentive to to sometimes go back and reflect on that, particularly as a consultant. And this is something that um, one thing for a start you might have that the um, at the end of a project, um, everyone kind of disbands and, and goes, flies off to the four winds. Uh, and so you never, although everybody says during the project, yes, we really want to do a proper debrief and see how this worked, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it never, it never really happens. I don't know if that's been your experience as well. It's definitely been mine. Yes, ab- absolutely. It's uh, very, very difficult to 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 get that beyond a summative evaluation that a third party does. Yeah, and sometimes even as a consultant, you don't even they don't even remember to send you a copy of the summative evaluation. Um, you know, so you, sometimes you can sort of fall off the fall off the radar in in that sense because everyone's kind of moved moved on to the next project. Uh, and so I think, and I think the other thing as well, from the point of view of a cons- of a consultant, sometimes um, because as well as reflecting on practice in this community, you're also angling for work. So you don't necessarily want to shout from the rooftops as far as we did this thing that really didn't work very well, but we think we understand why. Uh, it kind of feels a bit like airing dirty laundry. And so it's, it's, I think it's something that if, if, you're, if you're... I mean, I think, I think even museums sometimes are reluctant to share their failures. Um, oh, oh, absolutely. That's why so many of those summative evaluations went in uh, file drawers never to be found again. Uh, yeah. and, and we haven't necessarily, uh, and unless we are sitting around, uh, you know, with, uh, with coffee with a, with a group of exhibit designers and then maybe very secretively we'll say, well, this was an idea that, you know, sort of flopped. Yeah, and it's actually it, it's a it's a very brave person that stands up at something like AAM or something like that and sort of say, look, this was this really didn't work. And I suppose it's the same thing is, but I mean, again, it's I don't think it's unique to museums. I think if you see, you have to see the same thing with you know clinical practice, etc. That um, that the the stuff that didn't work doesn't get published. But then it means that I mean, the, the flip side of that is is that if you don't know that somebody else tried it and it didn't work, you might try it as well and it doesn't work. 
<laughs> right, right. And, and that is the, yeah. still, you know, the, 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 the challenge. I think some of us, um, you know, certainly in my practice, I, I, I have the opportunity to read the literature, to talk with other colleagues. And then when I am sitting as part of a design team, I can bring some of that, that knowledge and, and new information to the table because, uh, and I, I'm sure your practice is, is like that as well, because we see a breadth of, uh, of experiences. And we have been in those hallways where we've talked to people and they've whispered to us that, you know, maybe this didn't, didn't work as well as, as we intended. And just circling back to your research, I think that this is also a way that we can apply some rigor and even test out and maybe find that what when we say this feels right, it yeah. really is right. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things as well, because I think this is one of the things, if you look at what my instrument's done, it's not, it, it, hasn't, it hasn't said anything that um, is, is completely radical, but it's actually found a way of giving some organizing principles to it in a way that is measurable. So you do get that, you know, going from that intuitive feels right to something that's measurable. Um, just one of the things as well that just sort of just to sort of track back what you're saying about when things don't work. I think another thing as well that's kind of important with that as well is um, it can sometimes and I, I was it can sometimes get to a situation of well you know we tried that 15 years ago and it didn't work and it can it can sometimes be counterproductive if the reasons why aren't properly investigated because the reason if something might not work but if you only sort of based it on assumption and received wisdom as to why it wasn't didn't work you might actually have thrown out the baby with the bathwater um you know it may it may have not worked because of a completely different reason um so i think sometimes it's kind of it's not just sharing what doesn't work but actually start to build up an evidence base of well look this didn't work, but these are, this is some of the reasons that we, you know, based on evidence, it looks like this is the reason why it didn't work. I think that's an incredibly important point. Uh, we've got about four minutes to close, uh, and I don't. I want to circle back to one more thing, and that is the value of uh, this vocabulary that you've created is also, I think, going to be extremely valuable to museum clients uh, who often are at a loss to really describe what they want, uh, to understand what the designer is saying, uh, and oftentimes you're left with a, uh, I, I oftentimes will go into projects where the board president will say, okay, well, is this going to be successful? And you, you, you don't have a vocabulary to talk about that. Uh, you wrote a wonderful blog recently uh, about um, how clients can select exhibit designers. And as you point out, the relationship really is a two-way street. And so, so a, uh, uh, a well-informed uh, client is, uh, is also very valuable to, and important to the team. Yeah, and as I said, it's something that I, because I sort of went from, you know, I was on both sides of the fence, and I think I learned a lot through the period of being a client when I was at the National Space Centre, because I kind of went from, you know, I was pretty much fresh from university, hadn't done a lot of this work, wasn't really aware of the parameters, so I really had to learn how to be a client as well, and be realistic about what some of the possibilities were, Um, and you do... 
also be I was a lot more pragmatic as things went along because you realize I became one of those clients that understood that you know you can't have everything and as soon as you decide something that okay we're it's going to be hard so therefore it can no longer be soft and so sometimes people are scared of making those decisions because it's kind of like, well, what if it needs to be soft? I'm, you know, but eventually you do have to decide. You know, it can't be it can't be both hard and soft. It can't be both black and white. As far as you know, from the point of you know, they're sort of you know banal analogies. But in some cases, when you decide something is something, you're also deciding what it's not. And I think as a client, sometimes that's a scary decision uh, because you're you're closing doors. Um, and you know, the, I think the fun part of sometimes planning is you know having you know it can it could possibly be anything, but it ha- if for it to be something, it has to be not something else, and they're the decisions that a client has to feel comfortable in making. Yeah, uh, ab- absolutely. Um, and I, uh, you know, having also uh, been a client as as well as a, a consultant, it's often very difficult to have uh, the basis upon which to make that decision. You know, what it, what are what what are my uh, evaluative criteria to see whether it needs to be soft or hard? Yes. And I uh, I think that that is uh, that's a discussion that uh, that that needs to be. Uh, um, uh, had as as well, sort of. Uh, how will we know when we are successful? Yeah, and I think that's that's the other thing as well. And I think I do cover that in that blog post as well, as far as making strategies for making sure that you know a, a, a client and a designer are on the same page because you do bring different perspectives in there. And sometimes I sort of found writing a brief, you know, you sort of you think it was obvious what you meant, and then you sort of get the designer coming back, and it's kind of like, really, is that how you? Yeah. I didn't realize you could interpret <laughs> it that way. So yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, I, I, we're going to have to cut this short. I'm so very sorry. Uh, Regan, it was just a pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, congratulations on your research and Thank good you. luck on your uh, defense. And I know we'll be hearing more great things about you. Thank you so uh, much. We will be back next week with another great uh, interview. And uh, thank you for listening today. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.